All these electronics. It's number seven, by the way. It's um, so much to do to make sure people at home can see. We had over 400 people at our revival online, almost most of them. 390, I think it was, on one night. So we think it's valuable to do that. I want to um, draw your attention to this text that my wife just read, and thank you for that. That it's talking about a day when Moses and the Israelites came to Mount Sinai 90 days into their wilderness journey away from Egypt. And now there's a, a moment I'm going to share with you in just a second about what happens when they come to Mount Sinai for the first time as a nation away from Egypt. But I want to share with you why this is called smoke, no mirrors. Because in the Old Testament, in Exodus 19, where it describes what this chapter is referring to in Hebrews 12, there is smoke and fire and lightning and shaking of a mountain. There is uh, just a, a loud, booming voice like thunder. And the people are afraid. I promise you this. It happened. It was real. The people were so afraid they wouldn't come to the mountain. It was not gimmickry. It was not a storm. It was not something other than the presence of God in the earth preparing for it. And the mountain itself shook because of it. A lot of people talk about how God seems to be a bunch of smoke and mirrors. Not real. Explainable. And the miracles they try to explain away. Why? Because to believe takes work. To believe truly takes action. And so we don't want to do that. I want to share with you God is not smoke and mirrors this morning. And I'm going to share with you why that matters. Our Hebrews 12 chapter comes on the heels of Hebrews chapter 11. I don't want you to miss the significance of it. Hebrews chapter 11 is the faith chapter. It talks about all the heroes of faith and how they hadn't received the promises of God, but saw them from a distance and welcomed them because they knew without the Messiah and without us, it wasn't complete. So they were willing to wait for the full promise of God to come to pass. And Hebrews 11 talks about that. In chapter 12, it begins with this cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. And it doesn't just mean the church and other believers in the world. Rather, it refers to those who have gone before. The ones from Hebrews chapter 11. Those are the cloud of witnesses to us of what God has done, who are still alive with God in uh, paradise, if you will. Those clouds of witness surround us, and we have a race that they ran, like the Apostle Paul ran and all the other apostles ran, that is set before us, and he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that easily ensnares us. And look to Jesus who authored and finished our faith. 
And then he goes into the passage that we're looking at today. In verse 18 it says, You've not come to that mountain that may be touched, burned with fire, to blackness and darkness and tempest, the sound of a trumpet, the voice of words, so that those who heard it beg that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. In Exodus chapter 19, where this came from, I want to share with you a few verses so you know exactly what we're talking about today. The very first verse, it says, In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. Now that's the mountain. Skipping down in that same chapter, it says, God is speaking, says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me, get this, you've heard this before in the New Testament, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all those words. We also are called priests and co-rulers with Jesus Christ as the church. Now it continues, he's talking to Moses and the Lord says, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud. This is the cloud we're talking about. That the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So God is going to speak to Moses in a cloud on the mountain And the people are going to hear God speaking to Moses. Not to them, lest they should die, but to Moses. So Moses said, All right, I will do these things. And they set up a consecration, if you will. And here's what God said Go to the people and consecrate them. Today and tomorrow, let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day. You ever heard the third day before? What's He going to do on the third day? The Lord says, I will come down upon the mountain in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. For whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not by a hand, but they'll be stoned or shot through with an arrow, either man or beast. When the trumpet sounds long, come near the mountain. Sound of a trumpet. That sounds familiar too, doesn't it? And he says, Then it came to pass on the third day, in the morning, here's what happened. There were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled with fear. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. So all the thousands, hundreds of thousands of people of the Israelite camp that came out of Egypt have now gathered the base of the mountain, and Mount Sinai was completely in smoke. (laughs) No mirrors, smoke. Because the Lord descended upon it by fire. Now, At the last verse you'll hear, God is a consuming fire. God's descending in fire on the mountain, therefore is all the smoke. And it's a smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain began to quake greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long 
and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. At this time, the nation of Israel around the mountain was very afraid. Now, I'm, I know you can't picture this perfectly, but can you imagine a many thousand foot tall mountain and it's shaking at its foundations and it's covered in smoke, lightning and thunder, and you hear a voice and the whole ground around you is shaking. Are you going to be a little nervous? Do you understand what it means to be a little bit of a, a fear of the Lord now? in all of what He can do. And this is just Him coming to have a talk. <laughs> He's not doing anything violent. He's just coming to visit. Yet there's a fire over the whole mountain as well. The kind like Moses in the burning bush saw, not to consume the mountain, but God's presence is a fire. It's kind of a scary thing. But when God did that, it was an example, if you will, or a forerunner, a basic tenant. For example, when God built the tabernacle through Solomon and then rebuilt it in Zerubbabel's time and then rebuilt it, that one through Herod, that those were called archetypes. That there's actually a true temple in heaven. It, and it talks about it in the New Testament where everything Moses did was a pattern of what he saw from God's hands that he made as best he could on earth. Well, this mountain that God came to was Mount Sinai. There is another mountain holier than Sinai because Mount Sinai represents the giving of the law. As a matter of fact, the very first verse of the 20th chapter begins the Ten Commandments. The law is given at that time with all that smoke and fire, and then the Ten Commandments, and the people are going, oh, we're going to do that! Because they're scared. If they don't, something bad's going to happen. They, they're worshiping God in fear and trembling, but not out of joy do they keep the Ten Commandments. Because they know this God is who He says He is. As a matter of fact, it gets so bad that they say, don't ever let God speak to us directly, Moses. You go up and talk to Him and then come and tell us what He said. And that's what happened after that. Because of that day, they didn't want to see God or hear God on the mountain. And that's what happens in the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 12 where we read from 18 to 29. And then He says this, You've not come to that mountain. You do not have to be afraid to come to where God is findable. He says you've come to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, to an angelic company, to the church of the firstborn, to God, to spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, and to the blood. Those eight things you've come to. None of those are things will drive you away from God's presence. Mount Zion is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This Mount Zion is represented by Calvary, where Jesus gave His life. Mount Zion is the Mount of Grace, not law, not judgment, but mercy. And God is calling us 
to mercy and grace from His mountain to you and to me. And when He does that, He says, you've also come to an innumerable company of angels. I don't, I don't know about you, but when I worship God, I just don't often picture that there's an innumerable company of angels with me, but there are. We sometimes forget that we're not alone in our walk with God, no matter how alone we may feel. That there is an innumerable company of angels. You can't count them, there are so many, that are with you at all times. And when you praise God, are right with you. It's always true. And what we don't think about is that in those moments, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to say. Romans even tells us, you don't have to know how to pray. As a matter of fact, it even says clearly in Romans 8, we don't know how to pray as we ought to. So the Holy Spirit has to pray for us. And the Holy Spirit has a great task, which is to discern the things of God, to discern the things in you and in your heart, and begin to line you up with the things of God. And to pray those things to God that you need to help you with that journey toward holiness and completion in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's got that task. Even says that the Holy Spirit is like a fire. Somehow or another, we're getting a lot of fire in the message this morning. And there's probably a good reason for that, wouldn't you think? He says also, not only innumerable company of angels, but I like this. I've always thought of the majestic of this statement where you've come to. And you've come to this. To the general assembly in church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Oh, that's a good sentence, isn't it? That general assembly means a gathering. You've come to a gathering where people are coming to find Jesus. And it's the church of the firstborn. I don't know if you ever thought of attending a church called the church of the firstborn, but did you know there are no secondborn in the kingdom of God? We're all firstborn generation. That means there is no descendant that goes because you believe, therefore they're second generation. God has children, not grandchildren. We all have to believe for ourselves. Nobody else can believe for us, although many will pray that we do believe. And so the church of the firstborn, it says, who are registered in heaven. I love that registered in heaven. I've heard Lamb's book of life and revelation. I've heard book of life and death. But it says registered. You know what that means to register for something? Like if you're going to go to a conference or to uh, a camping or to some trip, you got to register. you got to sign up. Once you sign up, it says, My name's on the list. And when your name's on the list, you're a part of the firstborn. And you're a part of the assembly. And you become a saint as a cloud of witnesses. You're one of them as well. This is, a, this is only by grace that this can happen. It isn't because you wanted to be on the registry. It isn't because you could be on the registry. It's because Jesus Christ gave His lifeblood that when you enter into that relationship with Him, your name is written there. There is no other way to put it there. You can't write it. And 
You can't erase it. Jesus writes it there. He is the one. As a matter of fact, if you read about the book of life, it belongs to Jesus. It's the Lamb's book of life where the names are recorded, registered, signed up. I want to be there. Amen. How many of you ever gone to a conference, tried to get in on the same day ticket and found out it was sold out? Couldn't get in. This is kind of like this. If you are interested in attending something, you sign up ahead of time and get all the information and say, I'm going and get whatever you need to do done. The same way it is to be a part of the firstborn registered in heaven as you sign up ahead of time. And how do you sign up? By saying, Lord Jesus, it's not my life anymore. I live the life I have now for you. Paul said it like this. Far be it from me to glory except for in the cross of Jesus Christ, by which I've been crucified to the world, and the world's been crucified to, live, to me. And I no longer the life I live, I live by faith, not mine, but through the faith in the Son of Jesus Christ who gave his life for me. Amen. Paul says that to us in Galatians. Some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. And I'm so thankful that the cross is enough. Calvary covered it all. There is no other way but Jesus Christ to be in the church of the firstborn. Now a lot of people say, I don't really care for church. Well, let me redefine church for you for just a moment. The church, in this sense, is the people who belong to God. God's children. That's the church. The body of Christ. The church is not a building. It never has been a building. It is a place where we go to worship God collectively. But the church is not the building because the church as a building can do nothing but sit there. We inhabit it and praise God on occasion, but we are the church. When we walk out of this building and go out in the world, we're still the church. We haven't stopped being the church because we left the building. As a matter of fact, one of the church's advertising slogans I really like to help people understand the mission is this. This church has left the building. John Wesley said the greatest mission field is the world. And many Methodist churches around the country and around the world have on the back door, uh, as you go out the door into the world, it says you are now entering the mission field. The world is your parish. We are not limited to Sunday morning. I think... And I think you can agree with me that Sunday morning is for instruction, edification, corporate worship, to make sure the church is on the same page, to get together, to talk about things, and then go do the work. I believe that. And I believe you do too. It also says that we come to God, the judge of all. And with God being the judge of all, when He put forth His commandments at Mount Sinai, they were very afraid of that judge. But I have to tell you that the judge who is God has not changed. He still expects the same adherence and same holiness before you can ever come into His presence. 
And as you and I both know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means we've fallen short of the ability to come into God's presence. We can't do it. And God is the judge saying this is so. But we have a mediator of a new covenant named Jesus Christ who says, I am the price paid for those transgressions. And therefore, the judge who is God sees us with the blood of Christ on us and sees us as spot free. Whiter than snow. No sin does he see. And yet, he looks at us with judgment and says, Righteous. Scripture even says, You are the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Not outside of Jesus Christ, but in Jesus Christ. You are His righteousness. You are God's holiness in Christ. Outside of Christ, not so much. Not even a little. And then it says, you've come to the spirits of just men made perfect. Do you hear that? Just men made perfect. Now it sounds like it's saying, these guys were pretty good and God perfected them. That's not what that's saying. Just means that they've been justified by the blood of Christ. In Jesus Christ, they're justified. And then it says, those whom He justifies, He sanctifies. Which means to become holy. To be used for God's purpose. To be complete in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And therefore, once you are justified at the cross and you are a part of the relationship with Jesus Christ, now God must do the work of perfecting you. Just men or justified sinners that God has made perfect. You've come to them. Why? Because they're an example of how to live out the faith. A lot of people get the wrong example and don't live a life of faith. False Christianity will say, all you have to do is say a prayer at the altar and say you're sorry and you're entered into, into a full relationship with Jesus Christ with nothing else to do for the rest of your life but wait. And you can live however you want to. But to follow the right example is to see someone who's been there broken, restored by the grace of God at Mount Zion, Calvary, the blood-washed believer who then begins to transform the world around him for Jesus Christ. Him or her. So you've come to those people who are examples. And if you're not sure how to live the Christian life, find someone who does and ask for some time to observe, to ask questions, to grow. That's how you learn. It's okay to have a mentor. It's okay to have someone in the faith you look up to that you want to model or emulate until you achieve that level, then you grow beyond that. It's okay to do that. But that isn't the only thing you came to. It says you also came to Jesus, the mediator of that new covenant. You came to Jesus, didn't you? Amen. Isn't that who you're seeking to find is Jesus Christ? The one who actually makes faith into reality, darkness into light, brokenness into restored, sickness into well, lame into walk, deaf into hear, mute into speak, 
dead to life? Isn't that who you come to? Jesus? You're not coming to someone who's going to cast you out because you're sick or broken, but rather to the one who says, I have the power to change and transform your life if you'll put your faith in Me. This is what Jesus is saying. And we've come to Him, and that's the new covenant of grace. What do they do with the sick and the broken in the Old Testament? They weren't allowed to come into God's presence. They were not well, so they had to wait outside. They could not go in. Jesus says, Come all you who are weary, heavy laden, yoked heavy, broken, damaged. Come to Me and I will give you rest. And rest comes in the presence of God. The Good Shepherd leads us beside still waters and green pastures in a life of parched deserts and starving souls. And we've come to Him. And then it says, the uh, last thing it would come to is the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The blood of sprinkling. Now a lot of folks are saying, well, that's Calvary. It's not Calvary. The blood of the sprinkling is what happened immediately upon Jesus' death when He went in through the torn veil into the holiest place and sprinkled His blood in the holy place to sanctify it, to make it holy once and for all. If He didn't do that, animal sacrifices would still be necessary. But to make the holiest place on earth holy, Christ sprinkled His blood. There was no longer a mediator for sin, no need for sacrifices again, for the sins of the nation that they did not know they did or that they committed, that they didn't repent for, He's covered it all for all time. This is the sprinkling of the blood and why it's better than that of Abel because Abel's blood cried out to God for justice. But this blood was the blood of forgiveness. And that's why he says in verse 25, don't refuse the one who speaks. The one who speaks is not the pastor. The one who speaks is God Almighty. Through the wooing and nudging of the Holy Spirit, through the voice of the Son, Jesus Christ, who calls you by name and is your Good Shepherd. In verse 28, he says, Since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, there's no more earthquakes and fire. There's something authentic about something that's forever. Something that's genuine. Something that doesn't change and is consistent in all it does. That kind of faith in that kingdom. It says, Since we're receiving it, let us have grace. And that means with each other, with ourselves, and let God's grace reign. And in this way, we can serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear because we know that the grace that God has given us is a grace that is 
moving through us. It's a kinetic energy, if you will, that is stored up and God wants you to put it out there. Why? Because God's grace is something that doesn't stop moving. It isn't meant to end with you. It's meant to move you, to move through you. It's the work of the Holy Spirit is grace. That we may serve God acceptably. With grace. Seasoned with salt, Jesus said, but with grace. With love for one another, but with grace. Speaking the truth in love. Grace does that. Some people say, well, I told him the truth, but it wasn't gracious and in love way. It's hard to receive that. <laughs> Almost impossible. And then we can serve God in an acceptable way with reverence. Why? Because we know we don't earn this. We don't deserve it. That God gives it to us because He wants to through His Son. It is not our works lest we should boast. And the last verse, our God is a consuming fire. Do you live in awe of God? Or are there options? In the book of Haggai, he quotes Haggai in the Yet once more, I shall shake not only the earth, but also heaven in our verse 26. In the book of Haggai, I want you to hear what's going on. I think this will bless your heart this morning. I know it does mine. It is a time after the Babylonian captivity. They've come back. And for a while, they started work on the temple. And they built the foundation And then for a period of years, about 17, they did no work on it. None. It's because they didn't have any resources from other countries to help them build it, and they were a very poor nation. They'd been, after all, ransacked by the Babylonians. They didn't have a whole lot of wealth. They didn't have the fine gold and all that stuff. But it says, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And this is what God says. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by the prophet, saying, Is it time for yourselves to dwell in your own paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, this says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and brought in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes in it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood. And build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that's in ruins, while every one of you 
runs to your own comfortable home. God has not changed. He wants us to consider His kingdom first. That we've not come to a place where, oh, you know, that God stuff is Old Testament. And He's not really serious about don't touch the mountain. And and I've heard these stories said by many people where they can discredit this passage in Hebrews. Oh, holy Zion, you know, that's a one day in the future. It does not say that. It says you have come, not you will come. You've already come to the presence of Jesus Christ. All these promises in this passage in Hebrews are true right now. There is a company of angels and saints that you join when you worship. And God says we've considered our own homes and our own lives and abandoned or neglected His. And the community and the region and the nation suffers. Because our faith is lip service and not authentic in action to bring first to the house of God and let God be glorified that He may build up our region, our homes, our families. And this is the call I believe God has for us today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, for years and years and years I provided for my own home and left yours unattended and I couldn't even provide for my own. For many years I went struggling to even provide a roof over my own head, let alone my family. Struggling from one check to the next, begging from Peter to pay Paul, and never ever finding peace that Heavenly Father, the day our house got in order, And put your house first. From that day forward, I've not had those questions. And so, Heavenly Father, I hope that spiritual truth that you've shown my family and me would come to truth here today that when we honor you first, all things else fall in line perfectly. For we've not come to a place that isn't gracious. And it's not judgmental we've come to a place that is gracious that is not going to cast us away but has all the provisions that you have from heaven so I'm asking this morning Heavenly Father that we as individuals and as a believer and as those who need an authentic real belief in something real and authentic to believe in that we here today would say, Lord, forgive me for trying other ways. I'm home with you. And I'll build my home with you first. Heavenly Father, bless us as we do. Amen. And that's our closing statement.